You're listening to Got Tech, the podcast with your hosts, Eric Geis and Nick Johnson. Welcome back, everyone, to Got Tech, the podcast. This is episode 13. In this episode, we talk about the purpose of teaching and how traditional methods fit in or don't fit in. I'll try to fool Geis with another game of two truths and a lie, followed by a discussion about e-portfolios. Finally, we'll close the show with another tech battle royale. Nick, I can't believe it. We only have like three and a half weeks until school starts. This is insane. Yeah, it does seem impossible that summer is that far through. It's upsetting and exciting at the same time. I know we always talk about at the end of the summer, whether you're excited about going back or whether you're kind of dreading going back. But for me this year, it's kind of a mix of both. I know where we were supposed to start this episode, but I got to bring in a story (laughs) because I'm going to throw it back to your first year of teaching. At the end of the school year, you're like, I'm ready to just go right into the next year. Like, I don't, I don't even see why we need a summer vacation. And now I'm like, man, I could really use those five, six weeks of, you know, downtime. Yeah. When I say down, it's not down. I mean, we're still doing stuff. Um, but, you know, time to just get rejuvenated. But when we hit August, I'm like, all right, let's get back into swinging things. I'm all right. Let's, let, let's go for it. Yeah. You start kind of feeling ready to get back into it. And hopefully that's where everybody's at uh, as we come around the middle of summertime here yeah so all right let's get back into the episode uh one thing i wanted to talk about is uh, i was just at a unconference which is kind of like a you know it's a conference but it's there's no set agenda right and uh, one of the topics that we talked about, and these are all media specialists, librarians, tech specialists, ed coaches, things like that. And one of the things that we talked about is uh, work cited and citing our references and plagiarism. And that was the conversation that we were on. And one of the uh, teachers said that at their school, they still teach where the commas, the semicolons and all that stuff go in while writing their references, their work cited. And I was I was thinking about this and I'm, I'm just thinking in my head like why and the one person who said it she looked at me and she goes you have the weirdest look on your face right now i go i'm in deep thinking i'm i'm really thinking hard about this i want to choose my words wisely but i was just like why and i said it out loud why 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 are you teaching where the semicolon goes and she said it was super important and i understand that there's a importance behind that but we have engines that do that for us we have tools that allow us to implement a url and it will spit out a reference for works cited why don't we utilize that why is it important to still teach that so my question is why well this bay yeah i mean it begs the bigger question why teach anything or not obviously there's really important things to teach but what are those things because information really detailed information such as where do you put the semicolon that's the role of information like that is is different now maybe it's less important because there's so much information that's so accessible all the time so as as teachers we're kind of in this weird flux phase of figuring out what do you still teach and what do you not teach do we really have to show where that semicolon is that's exactly right and and really to me this was a bigger 
larger issue than do we teach how to write APA or MLA or Chicago style right. citations. This had me reflecting on education and what we teach in general. And one of the one of the examples another gentleman you know said is I totally get that. And I went away from that. And he was an English teacher prior to becoming a media specialist. And he said I taught that for a week, and they the students still didn't get it. Right. And I was like, well, why, why did you teach that for a week? And they were like, because it's important. It's important not to plagiarize. And I go, but is it plagiarizing if you have a search engine do the work cited for you? And he goes, no. I go, so why? I mean, teachers, we always think we can't, we can't do problem-based learning or project-based learning or standards-based grading and things like that because of time. And we have to teach to get to a certain point to meet a standard set by a state test. Right. Why? Why Why is it important to teach like that? Like, where can we save time along our way so we can still do these project-based assessments and include gamification uh, methods into our practice that might take a little bit more time? Is there a place in our craft that we can eliminate some of that time so we can make learning more engaging, more enjoyable for our students. Right. Well, or to keep going back to the example of the citations, because I think it's a great one. I remember being taught how to write citations and actually like going period by period or each comma and whether it's italicized or, or the where the colon goes or semicolon in different styles. That is definitely information that my brain does not have on recall. We, we're both going through some uh, grad school kind of stuff right now and I know we're, I'm citing stuff all the time definitely not from memory every single time I have to do it I pull up I think I like the what is it the Purdue owl is that the one that yep. yeah, that's a really good one I just look at that every time or if I'm on Google Scholar it gives me all the citation styles done ahead of time, wouldn't it be more valuable as a teacher to teach your students about the importance of not plagiarizing, how to find the places to learn about different citation style, when to use which style, how to check or how to critique a, uh, a citation that has been done for you to make sure it's correct rather than approaching it as like a, here's how you, or just memorizing how to do APA versus MLA. And and you hit it right there. Memorization. We, we've been saying for the last 10, 15, years that memorization isn't the way to go. And I could give you several real life examples why. First one, picture yourself in med school, you just graduated from med school. Yeah, they asked you to memorize stuff, but in med school, they're starting to push more case-based studies. They want to teach our doctors how to have certain skills of research. No doctor out there is going to be able to remember every single illness and all the symptoms and how it's treated and things like that. But what they can do is they can memorize a process. All right, these are the symptoms the patient's having. Okay, we can rule out this type of, you know, organ function or this body part and this body part and we could start narrowing it down until we get to a certain uh, maybe four five six different options and then further under further scrutiny you can narrow it down even more so case-based studies yeah they take a longer time but it gives you more skills to be able to figure out a process that right. you're going to use in the real world and and this is where the state-based testing kind of does a uh, the students a disservice because it's harder to do a case-based study test it takes more time to grade there's more written answers that had to be made more diagrams and stuff like that and that takes manpower so yeah really i mean all that stuff is related but i mean just getting back into it sometimes we just got to stop and ask ourselves why can we still hit these benchmarks can we still hit 
the standards that we need to hit without asking memorization or have students perform memorization practices. Sure. And it's, it's, I think you touched on something there when you mentioned the testing, which is frustration because this is, I mean, this is not the way most teachers now, myself included, we weren't taught this way. Most of my school was still about memorizing facts and spitting things back. I remember I used to study for tests just by rewriting my notes over and over and over again until that information was locked away. So for all of us, that's kind of what school always was, is you teach information. When I go to do a chemistry lesson, I get up, I talk about atomic structure and I tell them all the different pieces, that's that's starting to change. And, and it's, it can be frustrating for people because it's not what your vision of education was, or maybe you feel like you weren't prepped for this. But I think it's important to realize that if, if the real goal of this job is to prepare students for being adults in the world, being productive, doing things that are productive and, and contributing to society, this is what their world is going to be. It's not going to be about memorizing what a mitochondria does or or anything. You, know, you could any fact you could throw out. It's about where to find that information, where to find good information, and evaluate it when you find it. Exactly, and I guess the point behind this whole rant, and it is kind of a rant, is can you pinpoint some times throughout the year that you're asking your kid to memorize something, your students to memorize something. And if you can, how can you change that to make it be more of a, a gaining a skill rather than gaining memorization? I know I would cram for tests. I'd study a couple days prior to the test. I'd cram some more the night before and right before I got in to take the test. And then as soon as that test was done, all that information got put in the storage locker, never to be opened again in my brain. Sure. I mean, and, and that, that's problematic because if I would have learned a process and don't get me wrong, I think you do learn a process even with memorization, but not the type of process that we need to push out to our students, right. out to our kids. And there are, of course, we left out, there's definitely things that you should just know. But I think one of the cool parts about teaching more of a, a in a skills-based way or teaching how to analyze or critically think is you do learn a lot of information because that that process is so involved and, there, and there's so much intense thinking that the student is going to do during that, that they end up learning a lot of the stuff, a of the facts you would have taught anyway at a way deeper level than if you're just giving them a whole list of, 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 of things that they have to memorize and know. So it's an interesting topic and definitely something to think about. It's going to be uh, more and more in our educational world as time goes on. So just consider as you approach the school year where your memorization heavy subjects or units or chapters might be and ways to change or eliminate that towards a more skills-based critical thinking analysis level. You can follow Got Teched outside the podcast at gottech.com or on Twitter at WeGotTeched. So we thought we'd bring back a segment from a few episodes back, kind of playing off the ga a game that Geis and I, a lot of people used to play when we were younger called Two Truths and a Lie. If you've never played it or just need a quick refresher, the whole point is uh, if you're sitting around with a group of friends and you need something to do to kind of kill some time, uh, each person gives three facts about themselves or about anything, really, depending on how you want to play. And of those three facts, two of them have to be true. And one of them is purposefully false. That's the lie. Hence, two truths and a lie. I've even seen teachers do this as like, 
like a icebreaker at the start of the year. The point is we have kind of a twist on that game where I try and trick guys by finding three educational articles, hopefully ed tech, but sometimes we have to branch out a little bit and I will read those three titles to him. I will describe the articles just a little bit to give him a sense of what I'm talking about. Of those three articles, two of them are definitely true and one of them is false, either completely made up by me or just slightly altered from the actual real article. It's usually pretty entertaining because Geis has a freakish ability to tell when things are true or not true. So it's always mind-blowing to me to see how good he does at stuff like this, but I'm going to see if I can trick him again. Geis, do you understand the rules? I understand the rules, and I have not read any of the articles, and I do not know what articles you're going to use, but I'm going to tell you this. I have a tickle in my nose, and uh, I think I'm going to be all right today, but uh, you know, every once in a while, when those whiskers start going, I, I'm a little off. So. It's unbelievable, and if you, if, you didn't, if you missed the last time we did this, he's got all these crazy ways that he thinks he knows what's going to be true or false. None of them make sense, but they always work. It's extremely frustrating to me but i'm gonna see if <laughs> i'm gonna see if i can get one over on him this time let's uh let's kick it off are you are you okay for the first educational article yeah let's go for it all right here we go first one the title is checking phones in lectures it can cost students half a grade in exams checking phones in lectures can cost students half a grade in exams the gist of this story would be that students perform half a grade lower on average when they are checking their phone during lectures versus students who don't check their phones during lectures does that make sense Got it. I, I got it. So students who are checking their phone performs less well. Pretty much okay. by half by half a grade on average, half a grade point. Okay, pretty simple. Are you getting your your vibes from the universe coming in? Yeah, Any? they're coming in. They're coming in slowly. <laughs> okay. So that's the first article. Second article is entitled "Learning While Sleeping." This one sounded fascinating to me. Learning while sleeping. Um, this story is about how learning capabilities can be increased if sound is input into the brain during slow wave sleep. I don't even know this is a thing, but apparently it's called hypnopedia, which is the ability to learn during sleep. Uh, apparently it kind of got popularized in educational research during the 60s, but the, the brain is able to detect sound waves during sleep and researchers have figured out a way to increase the brain's ability to take in sound waves, categorize them, and hence learn during sleeping. So again, learning while sleeping, we can increase our learning capabilities during slow wave wave sleep right and that, that one's a little strange to me what are we learning here how to well like whatever i mean whatever you know it's sound waves so your ear it's going in through your ears just like when you learn stuff you know no, i understand that but are, are we learning the whole chinese language <laughs> or are we learning you know basic forms of knowledge right the, that's a great question the this the study that i'm looking at is uh, trying to teach individuals about future tasks that they will complete so you're asleep and and you wake up and you know what task you're going to complete and how to do it. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. That's the second article. Our third and final article, and I think this is the one that's going to throw you off. Uh, math with good posture means better scores. So, okay. So there's a new study and the study is finding that students perform better at math when they sit with good posture and that they think this could have all kinds of other implications as well in other subjects. Part of the study, this was done with college students, I guess, and they just found that 
that if students were slumped over, they didn't do as good, but if they were forced to kind of sit straight up, there was like a 56% uh, improvement or 56% more students found it easier to perform better when completing math problems. Well, I'm going to say that one's true because you gave me 56%. And if you said 50 or, or 60 and it was, it was a solid round number. Yeah, but I could have made up 56. Yeah, you're not that clever. <laughs> so that one's true. All right, here, well, let's do, here's the, the recap of all three before we get to the end of this. Checking phones in lectures can cost students half a grade in exams. They don't perform as well by half a grade. People can learn while sleeping and that ability is increased if done during slow wave sleep. And finally, math with good posture means better scores. Geis has already proclaimed because of my, <laughs> my 56% that that is the uh you think that's true you said that students will actually do better when they are they have good posture yeah when they're in the upright position all right so that's the they're more one. alert that way got it i mean there's an argument said that maybe they do better because they're comfortable sl slouched over but you know i'm gonna go straight up position will slightly increase your test score or whatever you're doing the math problem all right is that one? Am I correct on that one? Do I tell you right now? Uh, you don't have to. All right, let's. You don't have to. I, I want you to lay. Let's try and make it a little bit harder. Let's try and label them all, and we'll unveil at the end. Okay. So then the other two. So you have to pick which one of these is the lie. Checking phones means they don't do as well in class during lectures. Is that true? That one's the obvious truth for me. I feel like that one's true. But is it too obvious? I don't know, but I'm going to say that one's true and then that whole sleep thing because I, I feel like sleeping, you know, I, you, you hear the whole REM sleep, you hear all this and all that, and but slow brainwave, I mean, future tasks, why do I want to go to sleep? And then basically all night while I'm sleeping, it's telling me that I'm going to do chores the next day. Yeah, but I mean, it's that not sounds terrible to but me. But it's not about why you want to do it. <laughs> What I'm saying is I would put up some type of like a, a force against that in my sleep. I would be like, no, get out. This is time for me to right. relax. I, I, I think that's bogus. So and there goes that. Look, look. See the little hair? You see it? It's wiggling. <laughs> yeah, all right. So you pick learning while sleeping as the false one I, every time. That's actually the false one. Okay. And your reason was because... <laughs> <laughs> Your reason for that being false was because that's not because you wouldn't want to learn about, about well, the, the reason is that's when the hair in my nose started like, all right, you know, tickling me. It could be the mustache. I don't know. Every time he, he got it again. He figured out the last time we did this as well. Learning while sleeping cannot be uh, increased during slow wave sleep. Learning while sleeping is still super limited. The, the real actual article is about this. Uh, researchers have studied playing different, you know, audio tapes while people are sleeping and they thought that maybe during slow wave sleep which is just a certain type of sleep cycle uh, your brain might actually be able to process and categorize that information but it cannot so you were somehow correct hey i i, I just go with uh, whatever body part tells me to go with in this case it was my nose hair unbelievable well there you have it we got also in case anybody's interested for these full stories we'll put the links in our show notes uh the website we've gotten these particular ones from is called sciencedaily.com they publish tons and tons of really cool generally science themed things but you can find all sorts of stuff from psychology to math and, and any of the other sciences that you might be interested in so go check it out and i'm going to see if i can actually trick guys with one of these in a few episodes from now
one of the things that I'm super excited about this year as tech coach or tech integration specialist or media specialist or whatever they call me here is working with colleagues on new projects. And this year, I'm going to focus a lot of attention on working with my colleagues to incorporate e-portfolios into their teacher repertoire. And I'm really excited about this. It's uh, something that I've wanted to do for a while. And I think this year that's going to be my goal for this year is just to reach out and try to get some teachers to to use e-portfolios. That's a good goal. I think um, e-portfolios and, and maybe even portfolios in general um, should be and hopefully are becoming a bigger thing. I know in our school and probably in education as a whole, in case you're not familiar, I mean, that we've definitely all heard the word portfolios, um, but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the purpose would be sort of as like an alternative assessment for students. So instead of giving a, a test, a summative assessment at the end of a unit, to show me what you know right now. A portfolio kind of keeps track of, of work that they've completed, still demonstrating their mastery and all those same things, but just more of like a, a collection of artifacts, whatever you want to call them, really, that spans a length of time and gives you know, the viewer or the teacher, whoever's looking back over the portfolio, kind of gives them something to look at and gives that student a way, a, a place to sort of present what they've done. Like, they're, this is the best of what I've completed. This is what demonstrates what I know from this content and from these skills. Um, and that's what you assess as the teacher. And I think I think if you want to do like a traditional kind of multiple choice style test, that could be an artifact in the portfolio if you want. It doesn't have to be. And that's kind of the beauty of a portfolio is that flexibility. So as we move kind of away from traditional testing, more to thinking of different ways to approach the subject of assessment, portfolio might be a good way to do it. Did I miss anything there or does that all sound pretty close? No, I think you summed it up pretty well. Uh, one of the things that I think about is standards-based grading. And right. that's something that is taking place in our elementary schools right now and it might get pushed up to the high school but it doesn't have to be any standards-based grading system in order for an e-portfolio to work when you look at a unit or a chapter or a topic that you're teaching you typically have seven or eight concepts maybe more maybe less give or take that you really need the, the students to master so if you provide them with options to prove mastery are you getting the same out of your students are you getting more out of your students than a test and like you said a summative assessment at the end can be one of your artifacts. Right. That can be like the artifact that if they have to have two artifacts per concept or per standard, that could be one that covers all of them and they need one more. Exactly. And this, in my opinion, this kind of levels the playing field from the kids that do extremely well on tests naturally versus those students that don't do extremely well, it allows them to show mastery in other ways. Now, on the flip side, it also, you have those students that aren't good at keeping up with assignments and things like that, but yet they're very good at tests. Right. So, I mean, you have to look at the pros and the cons of both of that and see how it balances each other out. Yeah, that's one of the things that really sold me on a portfolio is that it can still include those testing or your, your, the, your traditional tests. I know I have some tests that I think are really good and ask students some challenging questions, some high level questions, and I want to see them do that. But a portfolio does, like you said, level the playing field, kind of opens it up for other students to incorporate uh, some ways to demonstrate what they've learned without doing that. Because for sure, so I, I can think of at least a handful of kids 
kids from this past year. They're just not good at sitting down and, and demonstrating their knowledge in that way. So a portfolio kind of opens it up for some different things. I know I tried a portfolio this past year where each student at the beginning of the year was assigned an element. So you got carbon and the next kid gets plutonium or whatever it was. And over the course of the whole year, as we learned different things about chemistry and atoms and bonding and whatever else, they had to update and create a Google Sites website uh, with information about their atom that relates to what we just learned in class. The thinking being kind of what we were just talking about. Well, you know, let's say Johnny's really bad at taking tests and he gets a, a 72. Well, I know he he knows way more than that. He just gets super stressed out in that testing environment. He also has his elements website that he can work on and complete over the course of the whole unit. There's no time crunch. Even a little bit after the unit test, I would allow them to work on it. Um, so I can go there and say, oh, okay, he didn't do so great on the test, but he definitely is aware of all the concepts I just tested for and it can kind of balance out for him and, and give him a place to shine. And at the same time, if you go back to his website and you see that, you know what, he has the thought process there, but the content isn't correct and it's not correct on the test, well, it's kind of like a math problem. A kid that shows his work versus a kid that doesn't. I mean, if you take a test, that's like a kid that doesn't show his work. Right. However, if you have that backup piece of evidence, that's like showing your work on a math problem. And that will allow the teacher to better address what that student needs. Well, that was the really cool part is it was so funny watching them, watching the students work on these websites because the questions I got and the questions they asked would never have come up if they were doing the same thing in a test question because the tendency during the test is to kind of throw your arms up. When you get to a question you don't know, you kind of throw your hands up and say, well, I don't know this, but whatever, it's the test anyway. Where there's nothing I can do now. I can't look it up. I can't learn this. So who cares? I guess I just won't do very good. Whereas creating the the website, they come to something they still don't know how to do. Well, you've got the whole day to work on it. It's due in two weeks. So what do you do? You go up and you ask me. So I get uh, a, a, a way more opportunities to help students learn the things I want them to learn, which is the real goal. It's not necessarily to you know have them score well on that test. It's oh you don't know how to do that. Let's figure it out. So it was it was an interesting experience. There's definitely some things I would change. I did notice some kids who were good at tests, they didn't want to make the website because to them it was just a whole bunch of extra work uh, to make this thing and it kind of felt silly because they felt like they had already demonstrated that they knew everything. So if I do this again or when I do this again, I'm trying to think of some ways to change it. Uh, maybe give some uh, some student choice, which I know is another thing we've talked about before. Yeah, personalized learning, giving them choice. And that brings up an interesting point because I was talking with a, one of our colleagues who also has two kids and we were talking about little kids and how they react to the parents during different situations. For example, if my son wanted to go for a walk, but it's uh, pouring outside and you know I don't want him to go for a walk I I could give him two choices we could either go on the back porch where it's you know waterproofed and we can hang out out there or we could play inside until the rain stops and we can go out we gave them choice and for some reason toddlers two-year-olds are okay with choice because I guess they're they're still feeling like they're winning because they got to make a choice and and really i i feel like that works with high schoolers as well choice is it, it's huge and any any teacher or like you said as a parent who hasn't started doing this yet uh, my wife is a behavioral therapist and that's pretty much her whole job is figuring out ways to give uh the you know her clients the people she works with to give them choice in difficult situations because it just lends that person an element of control while as the teacher you're still the one setting the guidelines as the 
parent, you're still the one, you know, telling your son, we got to go for a walk in some way. You can choose how we do that. And it's kind of like a way to meet everybody's needs. And it's incredibly effective. So as teachers, if we can kind of bring that to really any aspect of of our, our practice that we can, assessments is just an easy place to do it. Give them different options. Say, yeah, this is school. You're, you're here to learn stuff. You do have to demonstrate to me whether you've mastered that or not. And I'll definitely help you if you're not there yet and give extra resources. But here's some choices for how you can do it. It makes the whole process way more, I don't know if engaging is the word, but just more manageable or it's, I don't know, it's just like kind of lets them feel like they still have a say in the process to do what's best for them. So there's several ways that you could start an e-portfolio. I, I mentioned uh, Google Sites, but you could use Google Slides and each slide is uh, showing a different artifact for a, a different standard or whatever you want them to do. You could do it on a doc and make it hyperlink. Uh, that, that would fit in in with that as well so we're making links to each one of our artifacts and and really if you wanted to set it up what they have to what the standards are you can put that in the uh the doc ahead of time push it out have them make a copy and then share it back to you as they put artifacts in there and right and you could see it that way so you create the template and they make a copy and kind of fill it in yeah if you don't want to do it inside the google platform i know there's like website uh places like uh, weebly that is free and, and there are some um, blogging sites which are free which I, for some reason I just can't think of one right now. I know that there's like platforms out there like S'more that gives you a certain number of blogs free and, and stuff like that. But then you're getting into students having to sign up, you know, their account information and all that. So, I, I mean, I really just like, uh, I like using the Google platform for something like that because collaboration, you just can't beat it. Well, I think this is one time where we, if you listen to this podcast, you know, we bring up tons of different apps and websites and programs, but I think think we're going to advocate for just keeping it simple here and maybe rather than go sign up for another subscription-based thing, um, yeah, maybe just open up a, a Google Doc or a Google Slide or even just have your students keep a, a shared folder for the for the year and they share the you know the folder shared with you so you can log in and see anytime even if there's just a worksheet that they worked on that they thought was a really good representation of what they know there's all kinds of apps where they can take a picture of that with their phone turn it into a pdf and drop that pdf you know in their in their google drive folder so you can look at all sorts of uh, documents and different materials from throughout the year yeah so i guess the moral of this is just to, to go out and consider eat portfolios into your practice and uh, uh, maybe there's a unit that would fit best for this. Uh, start small, work your way up, and maybe e-portfolios are you know, something for you to consider. It's time for the Tick Battle Royale! That's right. It's time for the Tech Battle Royale. This is where Nick and I go mano a mano, one on one. His best versus my best. First one up the mountain puts the flag in the peak, and it is time to get it going right now. So we've got some categories. We're not going to read them all, but just to give you a sense of the kinds of things we can argue about, we've got productivity, fun and games, research, really anything related to education and things a teacher or student could use. So let's uh, spin the wheel of tech to figure out what we're going to talk about today. Here we go. 
an interesting one, and I'm surprised it hasn't come up yet. The wheel has chosen websites for our topic today. And I know we know we both know a ton of these things, so it should be easy to pick one, not easy to argue. Yeah, I think we need to narrow it down a little bit. Let's uh, let's go with um, websites that give you resources, teachers resources to use in the classroom to make something. All right. And if we're doing that, I know what mine's, I mean, you won last time. Will you let me pick first? I'll let you pick first. I have a couple of different ones here and I'm going to be very disappointed if you pick the one that I'm going to pick. And I know it's a possibility, but I'll let you go first. All right, because mine's kind of the granddaddy of all, I mean, at least for science teachers. You're you're making me nervous. (laughs) We'll explain how we can extend that to other subjects, but it's by the University of Buffalo. Cheese and crackers. There it is. I knew, I had a feeling this is the one Geis wanted to do because it's just so helpful. Um, The University of Buffalo is kind of the pioneering organization for case-based learning or developing case based lessons. And if you don't know what those are, I'll describe it briefly in a second. Uh, The actual URL will be in the show notes quickly now in case anyone is interested. Sciencecases.lib.buffalo.edu. But if you just do a Google search for these guys, you'll find it pretty easily. Uh, Case-based learning, if you don't know, it's really just an educational approach for a teacher to use where rather than just presenting the information, you kind of engage students in a story. A lot of times there's different roles that the students will read, sort of like a play. And it's just supposed to be a real world scenario where they apply the information they're learning in class, which is of course great because it promotes a lot of higher level thinking. Also, it kind of lets them know why that info is important. And these things, these cases are really complex to develop. I know you've tried to make some before, really challenging. And if you go to the University of Buffalo's website, they have cataloged pretty much all the best and brightest of these things. I know they have almost 800 right now that teachers can log in and access. If you go to the website, you click on case collection, search by topic, education level, the type of case you want. They're organized a bunch of different ways. It's just the easiest place to go to find a list of cases. So if you're a science, math, you could even develop a case yourself once you kind of get the flavor of these things, really within any subject area, as long as there's a real world scenario that the students can link back to, this is the website to check it out. Yeah, this one's going to be tough to beat, but I'm going to try anyway. Uh, One thing that you did not mention about that site, and I, I can't let this pass, is that there's new cases being updated all the time. All the time. Well, I bet you if you look at it, the last one's probably sometime in August. Put another check in my box, by the way, because that's another great thing about this website. They have, it's constantly, I mean, August 3rd was the most recent one, and before that it was July 29th. So uh, yes, it's really, really, really great resource. All right, so I'm gonna throw a data nugget out there, data, datanuggets.org. And this is very similar to yours in that it provides data that will allow students to wor- work with uh, real world issues. And so all the data collected here in this site is actually collected by scientists. And th- what they do is they publish the data and it allows teachers to work with that data to explore concepts and really just solidify the concepts using a real world approach because it's real life data. There's really two goals to data nuggets. And that's one, have the scientists increase the broader impacts of their research so it reaches more people while having students be engaged in the practice of science through innovative lenses. So it combines the scientific content from authentic research to help 
students better understand key concepts. So uh, they do have their own activities there. It's very similar to your site uh, because it has certain uh, ways to search for these data nuggets. And it also has, you could search by topic. Both of our sites have professional development. I see both of them really fitting in the same uh, category here, but data nuggets is more for the middle high school levels. You could search by levels and there's a lot there for middle school and high school where yours is more high school and college bound. And since we did not put a limitation of what type of students or what age level, I cannot fault your site for that. Yeah, it's true. And uh, your your website is powerful. I know what it's capable of. I'm going to give you the win this week. I'm not happy about it. And I really think that was my win that was stolen from me because I should have made myself go first having won last week. Well, I think the the real benefit of, I mean, Data Nuggets is really cool. I've just been clicking around as you've been talking. They have a lot of neat stuff, very similar to the University of Buffalo site. I think the big difference comes down to, do you want them pre-made from the University of Buffalo? For some people, that's definitely going to be a little bit better, especially if you're new to cases, or do you want to dive into some data on your own with Data Nuggets? I personally think mine deserves the win, so I'm, I'm going to accept that happily. All right, so what's my punishment? I think... I want to tie in. Didn't you show me some kind of video this past week from something you were at? Yeah, uh, at the Garden State Summit, Rich Kiker, the father of Google professional developments, uh, he showed this video of a little girl kind of like looking in the mirror, giving herself a pep talk to start her day. But what does that have to do with anything? Well, let's let's first of all play that audio because I want everyone to get a full appreciation for what this is going to be. My whole house is great. I can do anything good. I like my school. I like anything. I like my dad. I like my cousins. I like my aunts. I like my Allisons. I like my mom. I like my sisters. I like my dad. I like my my hair. I like my haircuts. I like my pajamas. I like my stuff. I like my rooms. I like my whole house. So that is what I want Geis as his punishment to recreate is this little girl's kind of pump up speech. I want you to make your own version of that and to make it even more powerful. We're presenting in a couple weeks at Ryder University. I would like you to present your video as kind of like the icebreaker to, to loosen up the room at the beginning of our session. This is fantastic. This is the closest thing to showbiz I've been ever asked to do. I didn't consider that he might actually enjoy doing this. I'm going to love this, but what I love even more is the fact that I do not have to read the victory speech. And I will happily make one. Stay tuned for, well, can we post the, the video you make on our website for the listeners to check it out if they want? I almost feel like that that is a must. All right. So we'll post Geis's recreated video. Stay tuned for our victory speech. While we may have flipped a coin to determine my victory in this episode's battle, I think the coin made the right choice. So whether you use datanuggets.org or sciencecases.lib, just as with any edtech, make sure it's the one that is the right fit for you and your class. There's a lot of tech being thrust into the educational landscape these days, much of it branded to be the best new innovation that you must incorporate now. I think it's important to remember that no technology can improve student learning unless paired with good teaching practice and properly implemented assessment. So make Make sure your selections are right for you and your teaching style.
Thanks for listening to Got Tech, the podcast. Remember, you can follow Geis on Twitter at GeisGotTech or Nick on Instagram at NickGotTech or just check into our website, GotTech.com. Until next time.